This episode is brought to you by FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret, and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming, only on Hulu. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Welcome to the New Books Network. Good afternoon. My name is Brian Topher, Principal Architect of Topher Architecture, and you are listening to New Books Architecture, a podcast channel in the New Books Network dedicated to architecture and its publications. If you have any suggestions on authors who you'd love to hear me speak with next, feel free to send me an email at btopher at topherarchitecture.com. Today's guest is Richard Ryan to talk about his book, American Urbanist, How William H. White's Unconventional Wisdom Reshaped Public Life. After a reporting career that included stops at Time Magazine and People, Richard launched a nationally acclaimed weekly newspaper, US One, and now serves on Princeton Future, a nonprofit that promotes sustainable urbanism in his hometown. Richard, thank you very much for being here with me today, and welcome to the show. Well, thank you very much, Brian. Thanks for having me. It's um, it's it's wonderful to be able to talk about a book as a um, uh, as a freelance writer and as a guy who's been around several different publications. Uh, it was my intention when I first got into journalism that I would uh, that I would write for a publication here or there and uh, do some freelancing and then, of course, go out and, and write a book. And uh, I'm happy to say that uh, now I've done that, th- there was only a lapse of about 50 years <laughs> between the time the idea came up and when it finally came into fruition. So uh, that's great. So here we are. Well, that's great. And so, uh, you know, before we kind of dive in a little bit, uh, you know, I was going to ask you to tell us a little bit more about yourself. And so I do appreciate that. But maybe I'd like to start with the question, uh, you know, of course, there's a lot of people to talk about in a book. So uh, here's a very vague question. But what what led you to write about William White? Well, it was interesting that um, um, that I was first acquainted with White back in the early 1970s uh, when I took my one job that was outside of journalism. I'd been working for uh, Time Magazine, and I was, I'd become just by chance the environment reporter uh, for Time. So I was interested in environmental matters. And, and in the environment, incidentally, was a, was a pretty new term back then in the early 1970s. People always thought of conservation. And, uh, and, and people were beginning to realize that the conservation movement was involving more than just saving open space and protecting birds and so on. Um, 
as it turned out, William H. White was a, was a big reason for that, but I didn't know it at the time. And, and so I, I, I decided I would try something different from, from journalism. And a friend of mine uh, uh, had mentioned my name to his father. The father was a prominent landscape architect in Pittsburgh uh, who had designed Mellon Plaza among other things at Pittsburgh, was, was responsible in some ways for some of the Renaissance in Pittsburgh. And, and my friend said, come work for my, my father. He's looking for a person to help him write a book. And so I, I did. And, and as it turned out, the job didn't work out at all through no fault of um, the employer or maybe not, maybe a little fault of my own. Um, uh, we were, we were unable to connect uh, as, as writer and, and, uh, and client. And, uh, so I really didn't do much. And people used to, uh, after I left it, people said, what did you do there? And I said, basically I did nothing. But, but in fact, I, one, one thing I had done was I read a book called the last landscape by William H. White. And it was, it, it had been published in 1968. And in the early 1970s, it was, it was viewed as a pretty important book. And it really helped show how the conservation movement was, was turning into the environmental movement. Because White, White was writing about ways to save uh, the great un, un, unspoiled pieces of open space in the country. And in, and in the course of putting that book together, he began to, th- to realize that the way to save the open space was really to make the cities better. So you make the cities better, you, you begin to give people less cause to spread out into the, into the exurbs or the suburbs, and you, and you thereby curtail urban sprawl. So White had all sorts of inventive stuff about uh, uh, how, to, how to make cities better. And, and one of his premises was that a lot of land uh, that people were um, thinking they could only acquire by going out into the unspoiled uh, exurbs around the city. In fact, a lot of that land existed within the city and it was right under their noses but they just didn't look carefully. So uh, White was talking about unu- un, you know, little unused spaces and so on. And uh, I, I just salted that away and didn't make, make much use of it. But um, about three or four years ago, I was walking down uh, the main street in my hometown here, my new hometown of Princeton, and saw some guys working on a, uh, turning a, a sort of a, underused alleyway and trying to turn it into a, uh, a little art space, very informal art space. And they were, they had created some arches across the alley and were beginning to put some things up on the wall. And I went up to the young, one of the guys and I said, you know, you're taking something right out of the William H. White playbook here. And at that point I thought I would have to explain who is William H. White and talk and mention the last landscape. And he just immediately said, Oh, Holly White, Holly White is my hero. So that was the trigger point to uh, to begin this whole Holly White uh, quest. Holly being the nickname of William Hollingsworth White. So there we there we go. Very interesting. And of course, I want to come back to some of his innovative and unorthodox kind of ideas. So often when when when, we, when I'm talking about a book, you know, about a specific person and kind of their impact on the built environment. I tend to go past their kind of personal life and biography and go more towards some of the bigger themes. However, of course, a lot of who I've talked about has been interesting, but it is worth noting that uh, William White's background, I I do believe, is very worth mentioning, actually. Uh, 
Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a you know it's a little unorthodox, and you know I guess so. I'll just start right off. You know it's very interesting, but uh, he does not have a background in construction or environmental policy. Correct? I mean, correct? None. In fact, people people have thought that he was an, an urbanist. He has no he had no special training in urban studies or urban design. Had no special knowledge of architecture. Um, then other people have thought of him as a as a sociologist. Um, I, I interviewed a uh, um, a professor of uh, computer science um, at Boulder who use uses a, one of uh, White's books to talk to her students about how to design online spaces, and she said. Um, I don't really know much about, I use his work all the time and I love it, but I don't know much about his background. Where did he get his PhD? <laughs> and, and the answer is nowhere. Uh, he was an English major at Princeton with a class of 1939. And, and as he himself said, is he has an undergraduate degree from Princeton and an advanced degree from the Marine Corps at Guadalcanal. <laughs> and, and that was it. And again, again, it's, you know, Again, we're, we're going to, of course, probably because of the bias of this channel, talk a lot about his, you know, his urban and landscape policies. Mm-hmm. But his first books were not even in that realm. I, I hopefully I don't misquote this, but his first book is actually about corporate culture. Correct? That that's right. Yeah the the the, the first the first couple books were um, one one was called "Is Anybody Listening?" and in that book he uh, coined the term groupthink. And he talked about groupthink and how it could uh, uh, sort of uh, impair our, our uh, decision-making ability. And then his second book, which was a mega bestseller, uh, was called The Organization Man. And it was on the New York Times bestseller list for almost a year. It's been reprinted in multiple languages, uh, many editions. Probably they, they've lost track of how many copies it sold, but probably over a million uh, it's still being sold today, and and it was the organization. Now, well, but but interestingly, uh, Brian, I think that, that there is a connection between that early part of his career and the urban part that comes up later, and and in both cases, uh, I believe that White was 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 looking at individuals within a larger context, um, you know, the the uh, the surrounding context. Um, so in the in the with the urbanism, he's looking at people in terms of their phys- physical surroundings. With the earlier part of his career, he's looking at the individual and how he impacts the social organization around him, and or how that organization impacts him. And and he's always you know he's looking at that 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 tension. So when it so they're, they're not as far removed um, as you might think. And I, I certainly at the beginning had no idea that he had written these other books. And I thought, oh, my gosh, this just how am I going to handle this? It seems like a total, you know, he, he veers off on a totally different course and then gets into the interesting stuff. But it turned out the first part was was equally interesting. And so to kind of piggyback off that, I'm going to paraphrase off of a part you wrote in the book. But mm-hmm. something he has done throughout his entire career that I think led to a, that I that I think leads to a lot of his success later is the uh, the fact that he often uses the most powerful argument against a case he's making, but turns it into a positive. And as I said, I'm paraphrasing. I hope I didn't butcher that too much. 
No, I, it, yeah. you know, just one perfect example. I, I, again, my bias as an architect, you know, it specifically mentions that architects often do better when dealing with difficult kind of constraints and situations versus a perfectly level, empty field. Yep. Yeah. It. Um, ab- absolutely. Yeah. And and uh, they they do their best work when they have their worst uh, when they're faced with their biggest challenges. Um, and you know, interestingly, and I did not get to put this in the book, um, and, and uh, in hindsight, I, I wish I had, although the, nowadays you write a book and you go to 100,000 words and they're saying, you know, do you really, can you really, are you going to go more? Oh, my gosh. I, I mean, if, if Robert Caro, <laughs> if Robert Caro were submitting the, or, the uh, power broker today, <laughs> the power broker, yeah. <laughs> they would... Uh, they, they, they would laugh. They would say, Robert, this is four, this is four books. This isn't one. But, but here at Princeton, there was, there was an architect named Michael Graves. And Michael Graves taught his course. And, and this, this jumped out at me because of White's comment. When I read, when I read a biography of Michael Graves, um, they, they talked about the, the course that, that Graves gave to, I think, freshman architects. And he had a... Uh, they had to do a project and the project instead of the project involving a, starting out with a blank slate graves gave them and the, the 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 blueprints essentially for an existing building and he said your project has to be an addition to this building and it's got to it's it's got to have two i think it has to have at least one door that's at a 90 degree angle to the door that's at the existing building and it had to have one other, there may have been one other um, constraint that he imposed. And then he said, go ahead, knock yourselves out. But I, th- I think Graves was building on that premise that, that White had had um, about the, the, uh, the difficult constraint or the difficult terrain or whatever it might be. Um, and, and, um, and, and that jumped out at me as, as, as an example of what we're talking about here. Absolutely. And so, you know, again, I, I mentioned I'd love to come back now. So, of course, there's a lot in here about some of his innovative and unorthodox ways of looking at things. And I, I just don't think we have the time to cover it all. But so this this critical eye, this I guess it, it when I first read some of this, it sounds like he often played devil's advocate, but not just to make things difficult in a way to kind of look at it differently. And as you said, for example, at the time, it, you know, very popular to say that the city was not a good place to live, whereas he took almost all those points, you know, too much noise, not enough open space, and challenged it. And so I, the one thing that stuck out to me that I'd love to talk about is, you know, anyone who's been in architecture school for any period of time is familiar with a lot of the skyscrapers were incentivized to build public plazas. Mm-hmm. And I, I'll actually admit that many of us are taught that it's a good thing, whereas William White clearly does not agree there. So I'd love for you to walk us through that a little more. Well, I think that he, he was not so much against the plazas, but he was against the, uh, the, the design of the plazas and, and the fact that, that, that the later the, the, human, the human use of the plaza was almost was never really considered. And I, I am not sure if he in, a, in one of his books or in um, one of his public presentations, if he, if he made the point that, um, that an architect, that one particular architect had waxed eloquent about, about his building, but when asked, you know, how people, how pe- how people felt about it, uh, 
he couldn't answer the question because he had never gone back to the building after it was built. So he didn't know. So, so, so White believed that there was that there was there was a great potential in the public plaza. He thought it could be it could be wonderful, but it had to relate to the people on the street more than just merely serve as a uh, as a pedestal for the uh, the, the the great building. Um, I think we all know the story of of the Seagram Plaza. Um, uh, Mies van der Rohe um, did the Seagram building with Philip Johnson, I believe was his kind of alter ego on that project or, or right-hand man. Um, and um, there was talk in the beginning of, I mean, they, the, the, the revolutionary thing they did, as I understand it, was to move the building back from the street. And, and, and all the other buildings along, along the street were Park Avenue, were right up on, on the avenue. They moved theirs back, gave it an incredible dramatic presence. And then the, the plaza was, was a pedestal. At one point, they considered making the entire plaza um, a, a reflecting pool with just one narrow walkway from the main sidewalk to the entrance of the building. So the, the building would just rise out of this, uh, this foundation of water. And uh, somebody talked him out of it. Um, it it might have been, uh, I believe her first name is Phyllis Lambert, um, daughter of the owner of Seagram's, uh, who's written a fascinating book about the design of the Seagram's building. And, and they were talked out of it. And then they, they made the plaza that they did. And they created the, the, the two pools that people all sit around. And they designed them deliberately. And, and Philip Johnson's quoted in White's book saying, we, we, we designed it so nobody would ever go, go along there. It'd be too difficult. And yet that's actually exactly what everybody did and still does. And it comes to a very interesting, again, so, uh, you know, I've read countless books about, you know, theory and policy, et cetera. And something I think that's very interesting is, you know, William White noticed a lot of plazas aren't being used, found this one that is being used, and then did a very quantifiable kind of study and observed all of them to see what worked and what didn't. You know, and, and he came up with some very, again, very interesting concepts. You know, it sounds silly to say out loud, but when there's places to sit, people will sit there. It, it may not strike you as an intellectual bombshell. <laughs> yes. He said, but yes. And so it's, it's interesting to, you know, often things are done and then people might notice whether they are successful or not. And that sort of seems to be the end of it. Whereas, and I'm, and I, I have to assume, I mean, I'll pretend I didn't read the book. I know that there are other examples where he took a very kind of empirical approach to prove or disprove kind of a, a policy or design idea. Yeah. The, uh, he, he made clear at a couple of times that at a couple of places that, that, there were there were guidelines. There were there was statistical empirical evidence, and yet there was also um, within his within his approach there was sometimes a need to to ignore the statistical evidence and the empirical because everything was context based. Uh, he was in Japan and he noticed a uh, pedestrian walkway that was incredibly popular. Um, and shops on either side, and I think he he measured the uh, the width of the walkway, and it, and it, diff- it varied from fifteen to twenty feet. And he studied it, and he realized that that in this particular pedestrian this pedestrian mall, it was an incredible success because on it, somebody could be way off on one side, but the other side wasn't so far away 
that their interest wouldn't be attracted by uh, by a shop over on the other side and vice versa. So there was there was and there was also just the right amount of room for traffic to keep moving, but for some people to sit stand still. And then he said, while all this was important, he said, I hope nobody goes walks away from this and says, oh, the width of a pedestrian walkway between two lines of shops should be between 15 and 20 feet, because it, he said, don't don't take that as the final lesson, but Basically, within the context, study what works and what doesn't and, and ask yourself about the width. That may end up being a pretty good width for you, but there could be times when, when it's not. So there are all sorts of anomalies that, and, and, and White, White cherished those because that was part of the idiosyncratic beauty of the city. Uh, you know, something that seemingly would never work ended up working because people adjusted to it. And uh, he is a fan of that. And it's an interesting point because, you know, if I were to design anything, whether it's city or urban, suburban or rural, there is a very clear set of rules and guidelines with, you know, very specific dimensions, numbers, etc. And so it almost seems as you already kind of hit the nail on the head that that might not be the correct answer. It's more of a and again, this is how do you solve that problem? But it's more it's based on context. It's based on local and regional, not an international setting. Yeah. You know, I think, I think one of the things that illustrates that context is, the, is the, the little book that he put out called The Social Life of Small Urban Spaces. And um, it, I heard one landscape architect refer to it as uh, the little red book. Uh, as, 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 they, uh, as he came up through the profession. In fact, that was Lori Olin, the, the landscape architect at, at the University of Pennsylvania based in Philadelphia. And, and, um, and Lori said for us growing up, that was the, that, the, that was the little red book of our profession. And in, in that book, White gave a lot of these prescriptions. He had, he had approximations for how many trees should be in a plaza of a certain size, how much sitting space there should be. And yet along with that book, he also put together a 58-minute video with the same name, The Social Life of Small Urban Spaces. Um, it's still very popular. It's, it's rarely available on YouTube. And when it is, it, it it's, means it's been pirated by somebody. Um, but but uh, all sorts of uh, uh, teachers use it in their, uh, in their classes uh, at various universities. And, um, and I think the movie... I think the reason why he felt the movie was so important, um, and, and the phrase I used was that he he really believed that that urban design was was as much uh, an art as a science, and the and the and the movie sort of showed the artistic flavor. Uh, there he had the Seagram's Plaza that that was working despite the fact um, no one thought it ever would. There were other plazas that worked uh, that were designed in more of a logical way that would that you could be pretty sure they would work. And then he showed a street up in Spanish Harlem, uh, East 101st Street, um, multiracial street. As he said, this street has its problems. And yet the street also had all the elements of, of what would make uh, a public space work. And, it, and, and that movie, I think, really shows you the... Uh, uh, the kind of the artistic, creative side of this whole process, and I, uh, White, the the English major, the guy who as a as an undergraduate wrote a wrote a play, 
and, and was interested in, in the drama of, of, of life. I think he just loved that, uh, putting together that movie. And, and to him, I, I think that the movie may have sort of shown what he was trying to tell in the book. And so uh, one thing I, I, I personally want to ask, so, you know, of course, I kind of glossed over, but there's a lot of discussion with Jane Jacobs, a very prominent figure in this field as well. I have no doubt if I was to ask anyone even remotely involved in this field, if they were familiar with Jane Jacobs, I would have asked, I wanted to ask if you felt that William White was as represented or as known as maybe he should be, because I have to admit that I was not familiar before I read this book. <laughs> yeah. Now, White, um, uh, White definitely is, is the lesser known of the two. Um, I mean, there's a, there's, there's a, there's a, fa- there's a w- wonderful dynamic between the two. And um, I think, well, there's two parts to the question. One is, why is White lesser known? And, and, and I think one thing is because he did, there were two sides to his career, um, you know, the, the people who know him as the organization man didn't didn't always follow through to, to see what he was doing as an urbanist. The urbanists don't understand the earlier part of his career. And um, and also his, you know, is among among the architecture uh, profession, you know, he, he didn't have a, a theoretical basis to, to explain his thing. He was, um, you know, he was he was telling people, no, there's don't 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 do not impose a theory on this because it's, it's an art. You know, I can't, uh, I, I can't give you any specifics and that's, that maybe is, makes him less popular to teach at the college level. I don't know that for sure, but it could. Um, so, so, so that's part of it. And then, and, and then Jane is just um, uh, tremendously popular, but, but, but the, uh, and, and I think people, who, who love and admire Jane um, may almost may may not want to say that anybody else uh, had an influence on her. There's a there's, there's this wonderful theory of Jane that she sort of rose up from Greenwich Village, uh, a housewife in Greenwich Village, kind of looks down on the sidewalk and suddenly sees her that has this vision of how a city should work. Um, in fact, she's from Scranton, Pennsylvania. Um, she, uh, she, she grew up in a town much like the town Holly White grew up in. She came down to New York and, and, and probably because she was too smart to go to college back in those days as a, as a woman, she might've been relegated to, you know, some sort of trade school, who knows what she instead became a, a, a working woman in, in Manhattan. And she became, a, you know, an architecture writer at architectural forum, but, but she still had, as a woman in the field, she really had a hurdle to get over to, to get that first book out, the, the Death and Life of Great American Cities. And, and the guy who opened the door for her was William H. White. Uh, she went off to Harvard and turned the uh, Harvard Forum on its end. He commissioned her to write an article uh, for Fortune, which is a sister publication to Architectural Forum. Uh, that article was a huge success. She, Jane wanted to, to leave um, architectural forum, leave her day job and, and, uh, and, and crank out that book. And, but she needed a grant. Holly White vouched for her at the, with the Rockefeller brothers and got her a $10,000 grant, which is about $85,000 in today's money. 
and and writers don't get that anymore and <laughs> and i can i can assure you and <laughs> and uh uh, then, then, oh, lo and behold, and this is an example of where Holly, you know, it's like the, uh, like the architect having to work with the, uh, the, the cluttered terrain. Um, Jane comes back to him and says, gosh, I'm, I'm all bollocked up. I can't get out of this. I need more time. I need more money. And so, and so instead of going to the Rockefeller people and saying, uh, uh, oh, we've got a problem here. Jane hasn't uh, completed the book and she needs more money. Holly says, I've got great news. Jane wants to spend more time on the book. <laughs> and I think this is so wonderful. I mean, and, and then I, there's, a, there's a quote in, in which he says, and, and, and this was not off the top of his head, this was in, in a memo, in, in a letter to the Rockefeller brothers, I believe a great and important book is in the making. And, and, uh, and she got another $8,500, uh, which was a lot of money. And, and uh, she completed the book and he immediately knew it was good. And, it, and, and he, the book that he had in his, in his library toward the end of his life, the, his, his copy of The Death and Life of, of Great American Cities had an inscription from Jane, and I won't be able to find it here immediately as we talk, but it, it, it was handwritten in there to Holly White. You have been far more important in this than you might realize. And and, uh, and and she really, even at, after he died and when she was interviewed up in Toronto in the early 2000s, she was asked, who were who your friends in, uh, in Manhattan? She said, well, my agent and then also Holly White. And, and, and she said, Holly White and I were on the same wavelength. And, and, and they were in so many ways. Um, now I, I could keep going on forever about the Jane and Holly relationship, but I'll just make one more quick point. At the end of her life, she, she wrote a book called Dark Age Ahead, and it talked about the breakdown of some of the fundamental pillars that uphold our society. And, and the pillars that she talked about were the same things that White was talking about in uh, The Organization Man in 1956. Uh, it, Jane, the end of Jane's career, she's pursuing themes that Holly developed at the beginning of his career. It's it's very interesting, and I, I absolutely. Uh, I'd love to pursue that more in, in maybe another article or something. But well, uh, I, you know, I, so as we get to the end of this, I often ask what's in the future and on the horizon. I think you've hinted at it a little bit. What might be coming up? Well, a little, yeah, a little bit. I, you know, more immediately, I'm 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 working as a uh, editor of a community website here in Princeton, New Jersey, and I am applying a lot of the urban uh, considerations that I've, that I've, a lot of the urban sense, sensibilities that I've acquired through the, the White Project, I'm, I'm applying that to the, to the study of things going on in this little suburban town of, in central New Jersey. And uh, uh, I, I'm covering controversies over parking, over uh, uh, university expanding and, and knocking down some historic buildings. Um, questions about affordable housing and, and what we can do. And, and I'm, I'm just applying a lot of things from the, from the white book um, into this suburban setting. And I've, and I've really come to the conclusion and, and I've, whether or not I can sell my, the, the, the community around me on this or not, I, I, I don't know. Some people are with me on this, but, but I think that the, the, the key to a successful suburban downtown, suburban town of any sort is to employ 
really smart urban principles. We in the, we in the suburbs have been living in afraid of the cities for all these many years. Um, I think we need to look back to the city and, and we can find some solutions to the, to the problems that we have. So it'd be interesting to see how that, yeah, be interesting to see how that uh, shakes out. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm interested myself. (laughs) Well, great. I want to thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me today. Uh, Well, thank you for having me. And for everyone listening, the book is American Urbanist. How William H. White's Unconventional Wisdom Reshaped Public Life. I want to thank everyone for listening and have a great day.